we're going to go ahead and start. Um, right before last four of you walked in, we, I asked the tables to, to talk about what it means when someone accuses us of going along with the crowd. When someone accuses us of going along with the crowd, what, what are they accusing us? And I'll, I'll get to that here in just a second. But um, I want to read this Apostles' Creed together. And I'm not going to make you stand, but uh, let's read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So the reason I wanted to read that before we discuss what you guys talked about is because I don't know if this, if you feel this way, but um, whenever I recite something with a large group of people, I, I have to play mental gymnastics a little bit. Um, it always feels a little weird to me. Does anybody else feel weird reciting something out loud with a large group of people? Just a couple of you? Okay. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what it is. I, I think I know a little bit, but for me, there is this, I have to go... Do I really, am I just saying this? Like we're all saying this, we're all one voice, and there's kind of this, you know, this unison happening. Uh, My voice isn't really heard, and so therefore, do I really believe this? Do I really, um, can can I really say this with integrity? Are things that go through my head? Um, now, this is like, I don't know, the eighth time we've, we've done this in, in, the, in the class. So it's, it's getting easier. Um, but even when in, on church, uh, in church on Sunday mornings in the main sanctuary, when, whenever they have us read something out loud, I, I both like it and then I have to do some mental gymnastics sometimes. And I wonder if some of it has to do with um, just our, our desire to be independent. And so think about this statement, you know, that when, when someone accuses us of, of going along with the crowd, what are they accusing us of? What do you guys talk about your tables? Not being authentic, not being a leader, being fake, or not having any foundation. Yeah. Anybody else have others? Not thinking for yourself. Yep. I heard weak. Someone say that. Um, I had similar things. Um, think about the phrase... Don't drink the Kool-Aid. So that phrase alone comes from what? Yeah. And so this, 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 this cult that followed this leader that just kind of seemed to go along with this guy, and then all of a sudden there's this mass destruction, this mass suicide that happens. And so when we hear, so I wonder if those kinds of things play in our minds. Um, so I also heard over here, which is a really good point. Sometimes going along with a crowd is, 
or not going along with the crowd is a really good thing. I have a son who's, he is his own person. He, he is very strong-willed. And I'm hoping and believing and trusting that that will someday work out to be a very good thing for him. Like he will be, be able to do what he wants, what he feels led to do, hopefully God-centered, and not go along with what others are trying to get him to do, right? So there's the negative side of peer pressure. And then, but what about, you know, I think for, for a lot of us, there's, we assume this negative thing with going along with the crowd. I mean, when someone accuses us of, it has this negative connotation. And, and I wonder if it has to do with just this radical independence that we have. So I'm doing four weddings this summer. So far I've done two. I just did one on Friday. And so far two of two. Um, and this is, this, is not a, this is not an opinion about vows, okay? So don't, don't hear this. But two of two, the, the, the bride and the groom wanted to say their own vows. So, and I was reading somewhere recently that that's like a, a growing trend um, where more and more couples are wanting to kind of read their own vows, which is fine. But I think about this statement. Um, think about the difference between someone who says, I can't wait to say, I can't wait for us to be able to say what my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, what all generations that I, what, I can't wait to say the same things they've said. And to, and to claim those th- same things and to kind of be unified in this thing with marriage versus I can't wait to be able to say what, what, what I want to say. I don't want to say what someone else has. I want to write my own. I want to make it personal. I want to really proclaim what, what I want in this, and I want it to mean something. So I don't know if there's one that's better than the other. I just think it's an interesting observation culturally. And, and I think there's some deeper things that, we don't want to admit, one being Disney has influenced us way more than we ever care to admit. Um, my kids roll their eyes every time anything Disney comes on, and, and, the, and the message is, what's the message of Disney? Come on, tell me you know it. Well, happy endings. Follow your, yes, follow your heart, right? That is, that is the Disney message. I mean, that is... It's, it's woven through so much of their... And it's not just Disney. It's, it's to, to follow your own heart, to do what you feel is right, to kind of be your own person and to um, self-actualize. Those, those are things that are just elevated in our culture. And I think it's interesting and ironic. We'll get to the end where I, I think there's, there's some contradiction there with us. But it's, it's in us. I mean, it, it really is. When someone isn't encouraged to follow their own heart, it's almost like we're, we're not encouraging them to have any rights. It's like we're removing their fundamental right as a human to not follow their heart. So I believe we are brutally individual in the way we see ourselves, in the way we relate to others. And, and I think, consequently, in, in, in the way we relate to God, um, so I, I know I, I struggle with this. I, I have a hard time um, seeing this sometimes, but w- when you think of yourself at church or in this room, do you see yourself as, as an individual who is listening with a critical ear? Do I really believe this? Or yes, I agree with that. Um, or, or And um, like most of us, like including myself, do you see yourself as an individual seeking to live out your life for Jesus 
you just happen to be sitting by others. Or, as a group, learning how to live for Jesus together. Like, is it, I'm an individual here learning some things on how I can live for Jesus, I just happen to be sitting around other people, or I am here and we are a group, and when I'm sitting in church, we, we are one and we are learning how to live this out together. And, and the, the, the latter one is, seems to be the more biblical approach. That seems to be the way when the, when the authors of the Bible wrote these letters to these churches, that, that seems to be what is described, and yet um, that's not normal for our culture, and it's not really normal for us. You know, this is the third ch- church that I've been a part of um, as an adult, right? So um, part of it is because I've been on staff. I don't know how many churches you've been a part of as an adult. Some of them because you've moved this job. Maybe you've lived in, in town and you've switched churches for whatever reason. But there is just, it's, it's just, the truth is, I, I, I Googled how many Christian churches there are in Stillwater, and there's, there's a lot of different kinds of churches, um, but there's probably 20-plus different just Christian churches in Stillwater. And so the reality is if, if we come on a Sunday morning and we don't like what we hear, we just can the next morning go down the street somewhere else, and we can find another place. Now, there, there is, I believe there's room to find a church that best fits, that's teaching truth and fits, you know, gives you opportunities to connect and, and serve and all those things. And you got to find the one that, that, that is right. But it is just interesting. And I think the part of the creed that we're going to focus on this morning is going to really challenge our radical independence. And it's going to call us to something that I believe we want, but I also believe we want it in a really shallow way. And so I'll talk about that in the end. So um, I want to say off the bat, none of what I have to say is my own thoughts. Um, these are the resources I've kind of been using over the last couple weeks studying. Um, so if you want to come up and look at them later, there's some great ones. They're, they're real short little books on the creed. Um, they all focus on different aspects of them. Some of them focus you know, primarily on just here's what, they're, here's what they meant by those words and others, or here's how we, here's how we in, interact with this truth and in, in, um, integrate it into our lives. So some are more applicational, some are more um, focused on what, what the original context was, but they're all really good. Um, so I want to say under, uh, kind of as a way of introducing these, this phrase, I believe in the holy, sorry, the holy, um, I believe, is kind of in, it's, it's assumed. The holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. Um, first of all, first observation is, it's under this third heading. So I went ahead and, and kind of outlined on, on your paper. Did you guys get one of these? You didn't. Here, look, I have four. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I outlined, so there, there's really three major movements in, the, in this creed. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Those, those are the three major movements. And before, before we get bent out of shape, that God the Father isn't getting as much ink time as the others, I don't think he's really worried about it. Um, but the, the focus is on Jesus, which is that's really kind of the focus of the Bible, so it makes sense. But the Holy Spirit has quite a bit here. And, and if you see, under the, this is the, the ministry of the Spirit, is the church, um, the fellowship of the church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. And so these are all 
things that are ministries under the Spirit. The church was birthed from the ministry of the Spirit is, is, is really the first observation. And so the church is the context um, of our belief in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So when we say we believe in the church, the Catholic Church, what um, I'll explain what that is, the Holy Catholic Church. But when we say we believe in the church, it's not the same as when we say we believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, we believe in the Spirit. It's what we're saying is we believe in, like, the church gives us the context in which to believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The church is the context. It is not what we have our faith in. We don't believe in the church and therefore trust in it. We believe in God, and God provided the church in which to live out our belief in him. Um, the, the other interesting observation of this, I, I believe, and, and we'll see this in, when we get into the, into the scriptures, but the church has, an, has a Trinitarian identity. So it's referred to as the family of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, so the church exists and is this context in which we, we get to live out our faith in, in God. Now, the rest of it, um, as I was studying this, uh, it was like every, every time I, I looked at a word, it was like opening a new can of worms, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get into and explain some of the complication behind some of these words. It's a, this is a really um, ironic phrase because of all of them, this might be the most divisive, and yet it's intended to be the most unifying. Um, this might be one of the most divisive sections in the creed in, in terms of the church at large. Uh, but we'll get into that. So I want to explain what each word means in each phrase. Holy, we'll start with that one. Holy, it's a different kind of holy, but it's related. But it's not the same kind of holy. Holy has already been used a couple times referring to the Holy Spirit in, in the creed. But when it's referring to that, it's, it's not the same kind of holy, but it's related. Um, the, uh, the church is holy, not like the Spirit, but, be, but holy because of the Spirit's presence in our life. It's not holy like the Spirit, but it's holy because of the Spirit. So when we are talking about the church, we're not talking about a nice group of people who get together and gather and hang out together. We're talking about um, the very presence of God, the, like the ministry of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in people's lives. And so the, the church is something beautiful. It is something otherly. It is something that only God could create. It's something that, not we, that we can't create. It's like we can't get together and just be friends and create a church. God's spirit has to change hearts, and, and those hearts become, become one in a, in a, in a church. And so it's becomes, it becomes something other. Um, so that's the first observation. It's not the same kind of holy. But it's also not holy. It's, it's not in, in, in the sense of morally pure. We know that's not the truth. Um, it's not holy that it's like in, in that it's morally pure, but in that we are set apart. Uh, we are set apart. That's what, what the word holy means, to be set apart. To, to, to be the head, the heart, the hands, in other words, the body, of Christ for the glory of God. So, so the, the church is this 
thing that exists not to exemplify itself or not because it's better than anyone else, but ultimately because Jesus has done a work in us, God is uniting us as one, and he's given us a mission to live for. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So that one's easy, okay? The next word is where we get lots of worms that are opened up here. The word Catholic, it's an ironic word used in this phrase for me. Um, the word Catholic comes from the Greek word, I didn't know this, comes from the Greek word, Catholicos, and it doesn't matter, but it's, you put these, it's two different Greek words put together and it means concerning the whole. Okay, in regard, of, in regard of the whole, concerning the whole. And latter, understood to basically mean universal. So that's typically when someone says, what does Catholic mean? It means universal. It's usually how it's explained. The earliest usage of this word was in, is in 107 AD. Okay? That's like 10 to 12 years after John the Apostle dies. So we're talking really close to the Apostles by a guy named um, Ignatius of Antioch. So if you remember Antioch, is the city where Peter goes, and most likely some believe Peter was like the first bishop of, of Antioch. Uh, in, in Acts it says that Antioch, it, in Antioch is where they were first called Christians. Okay, so it's a really significant place in the history of the church. So um, Ignatius of Antioch is the second or third bishop of Antioch. Some believe he would literally took the, took the reins from Peter himself. And, and, uh, and, and many believe that he was a disciple of John, along with Polycarp. So, so this guy has a significant role in the life of the early church. I mean, he's like generation 1A, um, you know, with, with the apostles. Uh, and he writes this letter to the Smyrnaeans from Smyrna. And uh, in, in, one, in AD 107, shortly before he was... Legend has it, I don't know if legend or historical, he was on his way to Rome, and he was eaten alive by animals. He was kind of martyred for sport, um, which is something that Rome did often with Christians. But, but on his way, supposedly, he wrote this letter and sent to, to Polycarp, his friend, who was the bishop of Smyrna. And in the letter, he uses the word Catholic. It's the very first time it's used, but he uses it in such a way that it's kind of like he doesn't explain it. He doesn't, like, introduce it. He uses it like it's been used before. Um, he's, here's what he says. And he's, he's, in his letter, he's arguing for leadership in the church. He's arguing, arguing for, like, a submission to, um, to leadership in the church, that, to be united, to be one. He says, wherever the bishop appears, let the people be. Let, there let the people be. As wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic church. And that's the phrase. That's the first time it's used. So there is some question in regard to the mystery of Ignatius and how, how legitimate you know, some of the legends are about him and if he really was a disciple of John, all that stuff. But there's really no question in terms of this letter and when it was written and, and the introduction. So everyone's across the board says he's the first one that uses this word. Now, he uses this word, and then we know by the end of the second century, so in, within the next 90-plus years, um, this word is being used across the board to describe the church. And it's, it, it's an adjective. It's a description of the church. So um, it's, it's not when we hear the word Catholic, we automatically think of the new building, right, or a, 
people who are Christian but different than us. We, we think of a certain group of people. Roman Catholic is usually what we think of. And that is not the way it was used when it was first intended. It was used as a description, a universal church. Now, we'll get into why that word can be controversial. But here's what, from the catechism of the Catholic Church, here's what they say about what Catholic means. And I agree with this, and I, I actually really like this. First, they have two things. First is that Catholic means uh, that the church is Catholic because Christ is present in her and she has received the fullness of salvation. I'm good with that. Second is that the church is Catholic because she has been sent out by Christ on mission to the whole of human race to unite all people under Christ. So, love it. It's great. I think that's absolutely true. Um, So, this word universal, uh, again, it can be, is depending on how it's emphasized. So is universal referring to people everywhere who are part of it and, and contribute to it, the church, or is universal meaning being one and the same everywhere? And that's where kind of the difference lies. That's where we start heading down a different road. So um, the, the question in my mind is, and this is a question I don't really have the answer to, what did Ignatius mean? What did some of the early church fathers mean by this word Catholic when they were using it? Did they mean that everywhere, that anyone who is under Christ, anyone who has accepted Christ or placed their faith in Christ under the lordship of Christ, anyone everywhere, they are the church or that the church needs to be look the same? If, if the church is to be one, then the church needs to be all submitted to this, the same leadership, under the same structure, under the same head, right? Which is Christ, but, but ultimately the Pope, right? And so that, that's where the difference is. So Catholics would say, we are the true church. Like, wherever we are, we are the true church because we're all under the same thing. And they have dioceses, and they have archbishops, and they have all these... Things and they're all under the Pope, and they're all submitted to this, this hierarchy of, of leadership. And, and so, because of that, they go, "We're the one true church," we, we, like because we've existed this whole time. It's funny when you when you draw out church history. Um, I need four colors, but oh well. Um, you have beginning, and you have this this split. And you have, um, this is 1054, it's called the Great Schism, and you have Catholic here, and then you have Orthodox here, so Western Catholicism is what comes out of that, and Eastern Orthodox comes here, and then at some point down the road, you have Protestant that breaks off from Catholic, but depending on who you talk to, these people would say, this is how they draw the line, they go, no, this is us. And then the Catholics broke off, and then the Protestants broke off, right? So you, you can always tell who, who draws them. And then if it's the Catholics, it's the same thing. It's just the Orthodox broke off from us, and then, then the Protestants broke Everybody's leaving us, you know? So it depends on how you ask. We're the, I mean, we're the only ones that kind of admit, yeah, we broke off from you guys. We protested, and we went our own way. I mean, so, but that's, that, that's how this works, is in 1054, there's this great schism, you have Catholic and Orthodox, and then in 15, early 1500s, 1509, whatever, you have this kind of Luther's starting this Protestant movement, which I don't believe he intended to do, but he did anyway. So, the question is, 
what do they mean by this word Catholic? So again, Roman Catholics, of course, believe that it's meant to be universal in the sense that there is one church and that those who are in communion with, and here's the one church, those who are in communion with the Pope and, and acknowledge the teaching and ruling authority of this hierarchy, this Episcopal hierarchy. Okay, and Protestants would emphasize universal in that wherever Christ reigns in the hearts of his people, there is the church, which is the worldwide fellowship of those whose head is Jesus. So, so it's, it's, it gets kind of hairy. And, and to be honest, to me, the, the Roman Catholic way is a lot easier to discern if, if, if they believe they're Catholic, if they've taken communion, if they've gone through these things, then they're Catholic, and they're saved, and they're in the church. And it's easy to, if, they, if they've done these things, this is how we know if they're, if they're in the church. We have, we have, ours requires a lot more discernment, a lot more spending time with to figure out, right, is, is, really, is Christ really the head? Have you really given your life to Jesus? Is there fruit in your life? Those kinds of things. So, um, it is interesting. This brought up a lot of questions for me. The next hairy can of worms word is the word church, which I didn't think, I thought this would be an easy one. This one was, this one was the most difficult one for me because the word church is the word ecclesia in the Greek, and ecclesia means called out. Okay, so the word occurs 114 times in the New Testament in 111 different verses. Um, Acts uses it the most, 23 times, but surprisingly, 1 Corinthians uses it 21 times, Revelation 19. So those three books use it the most, use it a bunch. Um, Matthew is the only gospel that uses it, and it's only used twice. And so I want to turn, have somebody turn to Matthew 16, verse 18. That's the first one. It's the most complicated one. There's a lot of complications surrounding this verse, and you'll, you'll see why. But think about, as someone's turning, as you guys turn it, think about Jesus using the word church. Now, when we hear the word church, we have all kinds of understanding of what that, what that means, right? We all, we all have a picture of what that means. It's either a group of people, it's, it's, or it's a building that you go to, or, it's, or it's, you know, it's the worldwide followers of Jesus. Like, so depending on your perspective and maybe even sometimes your maturity, it, might, it would influence how you see that word church. But when Jesus says this word in Matthew 16, it's the very first time it's used, there is an, under, there is an understanding of the word ecclesia, which, by the way... Jesus probably didn't speak in Greek, okay? He probably spoke in Aramaic or Hebrew, but Matthew writes this in Greek. So Matthew chooses this word ecclesia, okay? And this word ecclesia has all kind. I mean, it's a normal word, just like most Christian words that are used. Um, it's a normal word used, thrown out all the time, a group of people that gather together, those who are called out. Sometimes the called out isn't like this big missional calling. It's like, no, those who left their homes and are now sitting in a circle in the synagogue. Um, in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew, it's used to describe sometimes a gathering of worship and sometimes a political gathering. And so it's just kind of a word that's used. It's not, not that big of a deal. But So Jesus uses it, but he attaches some pretty big things to it. So somebody read Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you 
you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay. So, yeah, so he's, like, going to build my church, okay? So, again, we know what that means because we look back through history, but what, what did they hear when they heard this term? What did, what did the disciples, how did the disciples interpret and understand what Jesus was saying? And What does he mean by he's going to build it on Peter? So, right, so then now we have even a little bit of division from depending on if you're Catholic, you say, yeah, that's Peter, and Peter passed it on to this guy, and Peter was our first pope, and so therefore everything should, or is it, is it the confession of Peter? Like those who confess Jesus to be the Messiah, that's, that's the, the rock that he's going to build it on. So, so there's, there's some debate about what that means. And then you have the word gates, which is a weird phrase. Like even the commentators, they're, they're all saying, we don't know why he used the word gates. Um, did he, because gates is a defensive thing, but, he just, but it seems like gates is enough. The gates will not prevail over it, and so it seems like it's this offensive thing. And, and so there, there's just a lot of, not, I wouldn't say, it's not controversy. There's just some hermeneutical distance, which is there's just so much, there's 2,000 years in between us and that phrase to really know exactly what Jesus meant by it. But regardless, he uses this word. He uses again in Matthew 18 when, it, when he's talking about church discipline, and he says, you know, confront a brother in his sin if they don't listen to you, take him before the church. So it's used twice in that verse, the word ecclesia. And, yeah? Did you visit this place where he might have traditionally said this? Up in Caesarea Philippi? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that kind of the way that Maybe. I didn't get a chance to really ask about that. Yeah. I remember remember talking to Jim about that. And so sometimes, sometimes, sometimes being where they bring where he was brings life to it. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes. So like, I don't know if he showed you the the whole camel eye of a needle thing in the temple. So, which isn't actually probably what is meant by that. So Ori's explanation of it, you know, Jim has done some research on that. So sometimes those kinds of things we can latch onto because they sound really good and sometimes they are really true. And being there brings it to life. And other times it's like, well, there's still some question. And I think there's still a little bit of question involved around that one, why he uses it. Certainly he uses it and and is not, and he doesn't, like the, the disciples don't go, Jesus, what do you mean? You know, so... They seem to understand what he meant, um, but it's still the idea that he uses this word church, and, and then it's, it's later on, now we associate Acts chapter 2 with what was happening. There we go, oh, that's what he was doing, but at the time he said it, you know, he, the same is true with um, deny yourself daily and pick up your cross and follow me. Like, we know what that means because Jesus died on the cross, but then when he said it, the disciples are like, a cross? Why, why is he throwing in a cross? Okay, that's a weird thing. But so anyway, there, there's just there's a little bit of, of question to that. But the development of this word, even the word church, where we get the word church and where it comes from, there's even, I was reading different people's opinions and they were arguing online about where that word comes from. And so there's, there's this etymology, this, this growing kind of definition of 
of the church and ecclesia um, that is, is, to me, was really fascinating as I was kind of reading and studying it. All that to say, we know that, he's, we know that this is d- describing the church, the, the, the universal, the, the whole group of, of believers. In fact, I want to look up three different verses in Acts to show um, when Luke, the author of Acts, talks about the whole church. So somebody look up Matthew, or sorry, Acts 5.11. Somebody look up Acts 5.11. Who's got that? Somebody look up Acts 9.31. And then someone else, um, Acts 15.22. Okay. So Acts 5.11. Okay, so the word whole um, is, I can't remember what that Greek word is, but it's, it's related to um, Catholic. I think, I think there's, um, I think it's kata is the word, but anyway, concerning the whole. So that same Greek word is used for whole church, whole ecclesia uh, in, in Acts. So, I wonder, and I didn't do a whole lot of study on that particular verse again. I've done it before, but I wonder if he's just describing that church right there, like the people that were there in Jerusalem, or if he's describing, like, everyone. But at that particular time, it was probably just just pretty localized in, in Jerusalem. And then it gets a little bigger in 931. So who has 931? Okay. Very good. Very good. So it talks about the, the church in all of what? Again, Judea. Yeah. So now there it's kind of saying, it's kind of describing this transition. This is, a, these are, this is one of the transition verses in, in Acts where it, it describes like, they, they go into detail with stories and then they give these transitions. And then the church blah, 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 or the church was sent out, or they were, they relaxed, or whatever. Um, so it is describing, like, the whole church, which is kind of a, a cool thing. And then 1522. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. Okay, so this is the first, the first council is in Acts 15, where the, ch- the church gets together, the church leaders get together to discuss, like, how much do converts need to be Jewish? That was the main topic of conversation. Do they need to have, do the ritual rites? Do they need to practice the Sabbath? Do they need to do all these things that, that Marxists as Jewish? Because all the Christians that we know that started were Jewish, and now we have these Gentiles who are becoming Christian, and we need... We need we need to discuss what are we going to make them do. Are we going to make them become Jewish in order to be Christian? Or, or, you know, and so they, they work through this, and they, that verse is, is this summary of, I believe it's right after, is it Peter that talks? Yeah. Right after Peter gets up and, and speaks, they kind of say, yes, this is good. We, sh- we should anoint and send out some, some apostles and er- elders and send them out. And so it's, it's with the whole church, it says. I mean, every Christian is there? Probably not, but it's describing 
the, the belief of the whole church. So, interesting. That's the word church. And now the phrase, communion of the saints. This one, um, so back up. We believe the earliest manuscript, if you want to call it, of the Apostles' Creed was probably the mid to late 2nd century. So um, that's the earliest kind of rendition of this that we see. And this phrase wasn't in the earliest rendition. This phrase shows up in about the 4th or 5th century and, and when it was written in Latin. And so, so all we have kind of is, is this Latin version. So does that mean it, it shouldn't be in there? I, I, I mean, I don't know. But it is, it's thrown in there as a, as a further description of, or it's, it's, it's emphasizing something. And so what is it emphasizing? Well, the, the word in Latin for communion, communio, literally means fellowship or sharing. And then the word for, for saints is sanctum, um, which is literally of the saints or things. Okay? So it, this is why I believe like a literal interpretation is. It literally is the fellowship of the saints and the sharing of things. Sharing of things. So it's, there is something about this. They're sharing something um, that is happening. It's, this is not describing communion like what we're going to do when we go to church. This is not talking about bread and wine um, explicitly. It is implicitly dis- describing that because... Um, well, here, here's, here's kind of what I found. One, one guy kind of summed it up in these three things. It's, it's describing our fellowship with believers um, all times and all places. It's, it's describing our, what should be our readiness to share with others who are in need. And so you see that modeled in the church, um, selling their land and, and giving to those who had a need and, and taking care of each other. And um, you see that very much the case. And that was the testimony of the church, even from non-Christian historians. Like this group of people, they're taking in widows and orphans. They're treating women with so much respect that it's kind of controversial. Um, they're, they're, all these things are happening that was, was being talked about outside of the church. And then the last one is sharing of holy things, things that belong to all of us, i.e. I. the sacraments. Um, so baptism and what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. So sharing these things together. We, we, we have these things in common. Um, so here's my summary okay, of what I think this is confessing. That by the ministry of the Spirit, those who are in Christ are all set apart to be the body of Christ and to carry the mission of Christ to all the world as we share in life together. That's just my own little... Okay, let me read it again. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, those who are in Christ are set apart to be the body of Christ and called to carry the mission of Christ to all the world as we share in life together. So, here's my question I want you to discuss at your tables. How does this confession of the church challenge our independence? How does this confession of the church challenge our independence? Talk about that for a few minutes. Go.
My summary? Sure. It'd take a while. It's right there in the middle. Yeah. Okay, another minute.
right. We're gonna get. We're gonna jump back in. Okay, so on to the biblical support. I need some people to read. I need somebody at this table to look up Genesis 11, 4, and actually Genesis chapter 9 and chapter 11, and I'll tell you the verses. Okay, someone else do it 11? Okay. Um... You guys want to do Genesis 12, verses 1 and 3? And Genesis, or sorry, Acts chapter 6, sorry, chapter 2. Who wants to do Acts chapter 2? You can? Okay, I'll have you read, I'll tell you the verses in a second. So, let me, let me, in order to kind of talk about the biblical support of the church, um, I like I like seeing a theme that God has woven throughout the story. Okay, and so there's one story that has always baffled me as to why it's in there until a guy named Andrew Wilson helped really open it up for me. But Genesis chapter 11. Anybody know the verse or what, what's besides this table? Anybody know what Genesis 11 is? Off the top of your head, the Tower of Babel. So it's this random, weird story after Noah, before Abraham. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? Um, so in, well, I'll get to that. Um, but backing up, there's this larger story, we call it the meta-narrative, of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that God created, that, that, that we chose to kind of take what God had given and use it for our own purposes, and, that, and sin enters in, and God immediately starts a redemptive and restorative plan to redeem us and restore us back to Him, right? And that culminates in Jesus. Well, this is the larger story, and, and you see this actually kind of living out in the first few chapters of Genesis. So read Genesis 9-7. Who has Genesis 9-7? Okay. Okay, who did God say that to? What do you think? Noah. Noah. So God says this to Noah. This is, this is called the Noahic covenant, but this is the covenant that God establishes with Noah. And it's literally the same as what he told Adam. Go, be fruitful and multiply, increase in the earth, fill the earth, subdue it. That's what he told Adam. Subdue it. In other words, rule over it. For what purpose? God ultimately says, for my purpose. So Adam, I'm giving you authority to go and to rule and reign in this, in this world, spread out, uh, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it in a way that brings glory to me. That's what God is saying to him. And he tells, basically tells Noah the same thing. So then we get to Genesis 11. Read verses 4 and 5.
Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. Okay. So, and then you guys know the story. He confuses their language, and then they, they, they have to spread out, and they, right? So, why is this story in there? Well, they, they, this, when, when man is left alone to do what we want to do, and, it, and this is men and women, what we, what we end up doing is doing what we want to do, essentially. And so this is just a beautiful example of this. Just after he tells Noah to do this, you, you have several generations later, and, and they have forgotten already what they were called to do. Instead of spreading out and and, and multiplying and filling the earth, they stayed in one place. And instead of going out to rule and reign in, in a way that brings glory to God, they stayed and wanted to make a name for themselves. So they wanted to huddle together, build a big tower to make a name for themselves. And God says, no. And then the very next chapter, okay, this is why Genesis 12 is such a huge chapter. So read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. So, so God immediately says, I'm going to choose one man. I'm going to call him to leave and to, and to um, multiply. And so God cho- chooses Abraham. He chooses this family, and he establishes a family that, that grows into a nation. And then he ultimately, the, the Messiah, the Emmanuel, comes from this nation. So, right? so God starts this redemptive and restorative plan through Abraham, which leads into Israel, which leads into the coming of Christ, into all the world. And then now somebody read, whoever had Acts chapter 2, read verses 1 through 6, and then I'll tell you more. So, uh, and then read verses 40 and 41. Tower of Babel, God coming down, confusing the language, and ultimately sending them out, making them do what he asked them to do. In, in Acts, in Pentecost, you have God's Spirit coming down, God bringing clarity to their language, helping them understand each other, and bringing the nations together, um, and ultimately uh, multiplying them, right? So you have this multiplication that thing that takes place, and what do they do? They, they leave. And we know there are people in Rome, from, from Rome, 
that were there. And we think that's, that's how the church in Rome got started is because these people were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and they heard the gospel and they accepted Christ and they went back to their city. And so these people just leave and take the gospel, take Christ with them. Um, and so the Pentecost is kind of this, this ultimate re- reversal of the curse at, at, at Babel, if you will. And so I just think this is a beautiful picture of what God is doing. Like he, he, he's, he's woven these things throughout, throughout his, his story, and, he, and he, he wants us to see them. Um, so I want to turn real quick to a few verses um, and I want you to, well, actually, just write these down, because I don't think we have time to look at all of these and read them all. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, we are going to talk about the, the, the different images that, that describe the church. Here, the image is the temple of God, okay, in 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 26 and 27, um, it's a section we just got done talking about maybe a week or two ago, is... The church is the body of Christ, and it says, that famous line, verse 26, when the, when the body suffers, they all suffer. When they rejoice, they all rejoice, right? Um, this unity that takes place, we are one body. Galatians 3, 27 through 29, refers to us as heirs of the kingdom. We are heirs, inheritance. Ephesians 2, 11 through 21 it calls us citizens of the kingdom, members of God's household, also calls us a temple. So you have so far you have temple, body, heirs, citizens, members of God's household. And then 1 Peter 2, we're actually going to turn to that one. Let's turn to 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5. I'll read it. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for, this, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. And then jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a beautiful text to describe who we are as, as his body. So you have in that, you have spiritual house, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, um, and that is the church. So how is this relevant to us? I'm going to close with this. Just a few things. So I believe if, if I were to challenge us 
and to say, hey, I think we should be unified. I think we would all agree. Um, so, you know, the Protestant movement, a little bit to our shame, um, it, depends on, it depends on how people count, okay, because people can count however they want to count. Some say 30-some thousand different types of Protestant churches that are under the Protestant, right? 30-some thousand different offshoots and sects. And, and some say around 10,000, so I don't know how they differentiate that, or maybe they're lumping certain ones into certain categories, but... Um, so when we, I think most of us, when we see that, when we hear 30,000 or even 10,000, we go, oh my gosh, that's way too many. And if you were to just Google churches in Stillwater, it's like, wow, there are a lot. Why aren't we more unified? I mean, I think all of us have this, like, I don't like that about it, you know? And, and there's something beautiful about the Catholic Church, these actually essentially two different churches coming together and building one and saying, you know, we're going to come together. And we go, you know what, I like that. There's something about that that I really, really like and I wish we had, you know. And yet, if you, if you know much of church history and if you, if you walk kind of the, in the shoes of those leaders or those people like Luther who is not a perfect guy by any stretch of, um, of the imagination, Yet he saw something that was corrupt, and, and he chose to do something that I believe he was led by God to do. And, and what came out of that was, was kind of out of his control, but it even caused, and, and Catholic historians will talk about this, when Luther did what he did, which, again, he didn't start this, but he caused a bunch, a bunch of controversy, it caused, a few years later, it caused the Catholic Church to go through a whole reformation to reform the Catholic Church, to call it back to what it was originally intended to do. By this time, it was too late. There was all these things going on. But the Catholic Church went through a time of reformation, too. So a lot, some good came out of that um, for them. But I think we all see that, and we go, man, I don't, I don't like this. And so I think if we, a call to be unified is, is kind of some, somewhat over- I don't want to say overdone, overused, or I think in some way it's shallow because I think still deep down we are radically independent people. I think we, we, we like the idea of, of unity, but when it comes to actually giving up some things that we like, that's where, that's where the challenge is. And I'm not saying, I don't, I'm not really, I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's the way I feel about it. I feel contradicted. I feel conflicted because I want something and yet, I kind of, I, I mean, I don't want Sunnybrook to become something else. I like, I like this place, and I like this family. And so um, I, I just wonder if our motivation for unity, if it's gospel-centered or if it's culturally based, if, you know, most, most celebrities would call for unity and have no gospel motivation behind that at all. And so I just wonder, what, what are they wanting to unify to? What are they wanting to bring unity to? And I, so here's my three things with the gospel. I believe the gospel demands that we deny our radical independence. Luke 9.23, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, follow me, Jesus says. Philippians 2, 1-4, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Count others more significant than, others, than, than ourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. 
I mean, look up all the one another's in the New Testament. Just read all the different one another's. And, it, and you can't get this sense that, no, I'm, I'm an independent person who just happens to go to this one place every Sunday. No, my life is to be shared with, with you all. I am to be, I'm to open my home and my resources to you. And likewise, um, I'm to put your needs as I, as I look to mine, which are natural, I'm going to look to my own interests, I'm going to, but I need to look to others' interests, is what Paul says. So the gospel demands that, that we deny that. The gospel also is a unifying narrative. Um, let me read Ephesians 4. Paul is going to describe in verses 1 through 7. Um, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, um, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. With all humility and humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Um, earlier in chapter 2, he talks about us being one in Christ and that God, has, God took what was Greek and Jewish and slave and free and male and female and he broke all those things down and made us one in Christ. Um, so this is a big deal. It's a, the gospel is a unifying narrative. And third, the gospel teaches us who we are under Christ, in Christ, and as the body of Christ. The gospel teaches us who we are under Christ, in Christ, and as the body of Christ. And um, one of my favorite verses, Colossians 3, he's talking to the church here, okay, not me as an individual, but us as a church, if you then have been raised with Christ, this is Colossians 3, 1 through 4, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will, will appear with him in glory. So, those are, those are, I believe, facts about the gospel that should motivate us for, toward, toward unity. But I wonder, and so this is a challenge I want to I challenge you with, is to pray for okay, unity amongst the churches in Stillwater, specifically. Let's just start with our own backyard. Pray for, pray for unity among the churches. And look for an opportunity to build that kind of unity with other believers in this in this in this church in this community. Um, look for look for things to to have in common with with those that you are fellow brothers and sisters in, in the Lord with. Um, look for things when you talk about your church or their church. Be very careful about using language that would insist or or suggest that maybe one is better than another. But, but let your language and let your speak be, be in that. It, it unifies. It brings us closer together. It helps us see that 
I don't just have people at Sunnybrook in this town. I have, I, have, I have followers of Jesus that are all over here. And I think that's just I don't, one step. And, and for me, I just need one thing. And so praying for the unity of, of the churches and looking for an opportunity to, to build that kind of unity is, is that one thing I want to challenge us with. So let me pray, and it will be good. God, thank you for this, this creed and this reminder of your church and that, Lord, I've been struck just in my time of study by how often I ignore the fact that the church really is this miracle thing that exists in our world that is something that only you can create, that um, has a mission that only you can sustain. And, and so, God, I pray that we would, with humility, uh, begin to see your church that exists here, that, that we get to be a part of, and, um, God, that we would continue to surrender our lives to you as we walk in submission and encouragement and love with each other. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you all.